Hello, I'm uh, Roger Blumenthal from Johns Hopkins, and I would like to welcome you to this editorial discussion on the obesity pandemic, and more specifically, practical tips for cardiologists and other healthcare professionals to address obesity in patients with cardiovascular disease. I'm joined by two friends and colleagues, Bob Eckel from the University Roger. of Colorado at Denver, and Christopher Gardner from Stanford. According to the CDC, Colorado, your mm -hmm. uh, state, along with DC where I was born, <laughs> are the only places to have an obesity rate body mass uh, index greater than 30 at under 20% of the population. Mm -hmm. 33 states had a prevalence equal to or greater than 25%. There was a predominance, Bob, of SEC schools here. Right. Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri. Then we had some uh, Oklahoma and West Virginia. They had a prevalence of obesity equal to or greater than 30 percent. Uh, over 72 million Americans are obese, an estimated 27 percent of the increase in healthcare costs are related to obesity. Our first topic is how do cardiologists and endocrinologists and internists address obesity in their patients? Bob, you've been one of the experts and thought leaders in this area. What is your general advice on how cardiologists uh, can uh, attack this problem with their patients. Well, Roger, when I had the privilege of being president of the HA in 2005-2006, my presidential address at this time five years ago was to challenge cardiologists and other physicians, of course, to spend at least three minutes questioning patients about lifestyle. I mean, office visits are quick. You don't have a lot of time, but at least show an interest in what people do with their feet and what they put in their mouth. And as most of us know, ultimately assessing caloric intake in the obese is really not worthy of time. In other words, most people that are overweight or even people that are normally sometimes overestimate or underestimate their caloric intake and overestimate their physical activity. So I think that time is not well spent, but ultimately showing an interest in the quality of the diet and physical activity is an important step forward. Now, in the patient that needs to lose weight, we've got to spend another 20 to 25 minutes of time with these patients. This is not go see the dietitian. I want to see you back in three months, see how you're doing. This is not the way we're effective at losing weight. So there's some evidence-based things that one can do in terms of eating breakfast, perhaps using meal substitutions. Ultimately, predicting a one-pound weight loss per week is 500 less calories a day. But as a physician, we need to bond with a patient, understanding that they are obese. This is not a guilt trip now. We want to bond with them in terms of the medical importance of losing weight and ultimately how to do it successfully. So I typically, Roger, at the end of a visit, say, well, Mrs. Jones, now we're going to be seeing you in three months, and I want to have our dietitian be maintaining contact with you during that interval. Well, let's see, 500 calories a day for three months is about 12 pounds, so you weigh 182 today, I can expect us to be down around 170 at the time of your next visit. And when that patient comes back, then there's no guilt trip if they're 178. In other words, we, we encourage them, but continue to remind them that this is a slow process, that ultimately we can't achieve it. That's very helpful. Christopher, at uh, Stanford, you and your colleagues have done lots of research about weight loss. Tell us a little bit about your approach to the overweight patient and what sort of goals do you try to set? Well, I think the frustration for many people has been the the one approach, the low-fat approach, the mantra that they've heard over and over again, and then the whole public opinion swayed the other way for the low-carb, and they were left being very confused. And when you added up all the studies, it didn't seem that anything made more than a few pounds of difference. But what we've been looking at lately is the extreme heterogeneity in those responses. So if you look at, at any study, we had a study of uh, 300 women where there are 75 in each group. 
in every one of our diet groups, low fat, low carb, whatever it was, somebody lost 40 or 50 pounds and somebody gained 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. So the average differences might have been four or five pounds between groups. But within any group, there was a 40, 50, 60 pound range. And I, I think we're identifying what some of those clues are and, and some of them are clinically easy to check out. One of them is insulin resistance and Bob has participated in a study looking at some insulin resistant folks do better on a low carb diet whereas insulin sensitive folks do better on a low fat diet. Uh, there's some really neat uh, genotyping that's happening right now. I think we're just at the start of that but there's, there's some reason to believe that you're genetically predisposed to do better one way or the other. We're finding that things like insomnia are undermining somebody's uh, ability to maintain their diet or their exercise and that that's kicking off uh, hormonal milieu, ghrelin and leptin that, that makes it hard to follow a diet and, and makes you crave high carbohydrates. So, so what we're looking at, uh, what we're looking for are some of these heterogeneous factors that would help you tailor a diet that would make it easier to be satiated longer term one way or the other instead of just one diet for everybody. So Bob, uh, Christopher brought up uh, sleep disorders and do you refer a lot of your patients for sleep studies and what role does sleep apnea play do you think? Well I think sleep apnea is very much related to obesity, Roger, and uh, you know the obese patients are more likely to have sleep apnea for anatomic reasons and so it doesn't take me uh, very long <coughs> to get a history consistent with obstructive sleep apnea and yes I use sleep studies fairly commonly in my practice. So when you mentioned in, insom <coughs> excuse me, insomnia, are, were you referring to problems with sleep apnea, Christopher, or were you talking about other psychological or emotional aspects that well, may lead to Well, it's the whole spectrum, and we're, we're doing some pilot work right now with, uh, we exclude the ones with severe sleep apnea and take more moderate uh, insomnia. And uh, there are some medications for that, but actually cognitive behavioral therapy is established as being effective for helping people clean up their sleep hygiene uh, and improving the quality of their sleep. And some really interesting work being done in Chicago right now has looked at, at what sleep restriction does, uh, and it really contributes to this uh, sense of loss of appetite control that's contributing. So I think beyond sleep apnea, even at the more moderate level, that's another one of the factors that, that's been making this confusing for years and something that we could address. You know, Roger, along that line, Ken Wright and I from Boulder are doing some stuff with restrictive sleep patterns and ultimately mm. finding there are modest to moderate changes in energy balance that uh, uh, follow or are subsequent to sleep restriction. So I think there's a real science and metabolic behavior that follows this sleep restriction pattern. And to show you how interrelated it is, so Abby King in our group does exercise work and uh, we were doing a sleep promotion study to try to help them stick with their exercise regimen. She was doing exercise promotion campaigns to help them sleep better. So they tend to be, n nothing's unidirectional here, it's bi-directional and so there's a lot of components to attack to improve our success. Bob, there's a concept called the obesity paradox um, that some of the people in the audience have heard about. Does that refer to the uh, individuals who are very overweight compared to the malnourished and that the malnourished people uh, may not do quite as well as the obese? or? Is there a standard definition of the obesity paradox? The obesity paradox, I think, is a term that's not well defined, actually. There's certainly uh, issues at both ends of the weight spectrum, and people with partial lipodystrophy or, or complete lip lipodystrophy clearly are at metabolic risk and have more heart disease, a wide variety of types of heart disease. Obesity uh, sometimes can be protective under certain circumstances. I mean, there's no question in the later years, let's say 70 plus years, 
being a little bit heavier is a survival advantage. And that's maybe because of the obesity paradox on the low end. People who weigh less may have disorders that contribute to an earlier mortality. Bruce, tell us where exercise fits in. Do you give patients pedometers or do you tell them to keep track of how much walking they do? Yeah, the pedometers is a nice meta-analysis recently that something as simple as the $10 pedometer is a great behavior modification tool. Um, yeah, exercise is key. The interesting thing I think Bob would agree is if you look at the literature, absolutely diet and exercise have to go hand in hand. But the folks who just start with exercise and without diet, they don't lose a lot of weight right away and they become very frustrated. You know, one thing I do, Chris, in that regard is I try to uh, ignore some of the controlled trials here in terms of the importance of both diet and exercise during active weight loss. And uh, John Jakesic just had a nice paper a few weeks ago that ultimately showed that if you delayed the exercise component to six months after the hypochloric period, mm -hmm. ultimately the success of one year was the same. And the reason I do this, and you're the guy who needs to advise me in terms of my behavior, <laughs> is, is that I think when we overwhelm patients with too much change in lifestyle at the same time, sometimes in the clinic now, not in a controlled study, they're overwhelmed by too much new information. So I focus on weight reduction by diet alone first, and then I incorporate physical activity secondarily after the weight has been lost and maintained for a period. So Christopher, tell us a little bit about low glycemic uh, approaches versus um, just restricting calories, Weight Watchers versus um, you know, other types of low carb, uh, high fat diets. Um, how do you uh, advise patients? Right, so if you're gonna go with the carbs, again, this is the thing that frustrates me when we just oversimplify and say low fat or low carb, because there's a whole range of types of carbohydrates, there's a whole range of types of fats, and if you don't have time to go into the details, somebody can game the system. So they can say, okay, I'm gonna go low fat, and I'm just gonna have a lot of sugar, or I'm gonna go low carb, and I'm gonna just eat cheese and uh, all kinds of high fat foods. So, I'm not a clinician, I'm an academic. I'm gonna throw this back to you. So if you've only got the two or three minutes, do you send them to the dietitian? What kind of follow-up do you have? Because some of this is a little more sophisticated and, and these folks need help differentiating what some of these types of foods are when they're, they may all be low carb, but some are better low carb than others. I think an important point here is that the two to three minutes is just time up front by every physician assessing lifestyle in some manner. The patient who needs to lose weight, remember I said 20 or 25 additional minutes for me to bond with them about obesity, about weight maintenance, getting rid of the guilt trip, finding out what types of strategies behaviorally we can use in them to get success. It may be telephone surveys. It may be, in fact, something online. It, there, you know well, Chris, there are many ways people can achieve the result. And then I want a dietitian who works with me closely, who feels like I do about the dietary recommendations we're gonna make. I think you can't have an antithesis of, of views on the part of the physician and the healthcare professional that works with a physician, important. Very good point. In terms of Weight Watchers, uh, Christopher, is that something that is very easy for patients to grasp that concept? Or are there other um, basic approaches that you think is the, the first step? Uh, what do you use? Well, recommend? Weight Watchers actually has a lot of behavior modification in it. Okay. There's a lot of follow-up, a lot of continuity, a lot of alternative ways of counting. Uh, we just had a JAMA paper in the last month. Uh, it came out at the Obesity Society for Jenny Craig with some meal replacement. So part of it's the behavior modification and the follow-up. Part of it is the access to the meal replacement. For some people who don't have the time to cook or don't have the interest in cooking, that's one way to get a kickstart. But I think in the long run, 
actually you're gonna have to cook for yourself. I, I wish as a nutrition researcher, for me, no matter how many studies we do, we really need to get back to cooking more, spending more time eating with the family and, and seeing when you're full, staying at the table long enough with your family to see when you're full. And that's a challenge. I don't know how we're going to teach that to the American public unless they value their food a little more, which, which is happening. There's some interesting changes in social norms around food right now. Lots of interesting movies and books out that are getting people more excited about real food, not just about nutrients. So. So, so, Bob, you and I are big sports fans. We watch ESPN. We've seen Don Shula. <laughs> we've seen, you know, um, Golick. We've seen Marino. They say they lose 50 pounds in a certain type of uh, dietary program. What and about the, the concepts of are there additional problems when you use a lot of weight quickly, or do you think the more sustained two to four pounds a month is a better way to try to get your patients to keep that weight off? Well, we have to begin understanding there's a tremendous recidivism with obesity. So getting people to lose weight is hard enough to begin with, and keeping it off is another platform of behavioral modification long term. I kind of like the strategy at times if a patient uh, is at a high BMI, we'd like to get down uh, the weight perhaps in the range of 15 to 20 percent, although usually 5 to 10 percent is enough to modify cardiovascular risk factors. Ultimately, I like plateau strategies where people lose a certain amount of weight and then plateau for a while, teaching plateau behavior. And again, from the National Weight Control Registry, I didn't mention it earlier, but the people who maintain the weight loss long term are people who exercise a lot. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about a casual walk three times a week. We're talking about 60 minutes a day, most days of the week, and mm -hmm. people that sustain the weight reduction. So losing weight is tough, keeping it off is another strategy, and I think it, it, in that type of environment, you've got to teach the patient about the two different types of ways of approaching this. So Bob, Ramona Band had a, a lot of fanfare a few years ago, but it fizzled. Uh, Sibutramine, FDA decided to withdraw it. We have Orlistat, um, we have a, a lie. Are there any um, weight loss products that you recommend to um, patients that they can get over the counter and which things should clinicians consider? Well, this is really an important area. As, as you know, and maybe our audience knows, there have been a lot of drugs postured before the FDA recently in terms of weight loss, and these drugs have not fared well at this time. Uh, additional studies are being required, and, and I think the, the, the level, the threshold uh, of approval level for the FDA on these drugs is high now after Ramonaban and Sibutramine. To, to cut to the chase, I, I find something very interesting, Chris, I'd be interested in your comment on this, is that over the years, I, I was a fairly big FenFen user initially, and then when fenfluramine was taken off the market, I tried to kind of reassess my practice of obesity-related medicine. And what I found is this, and, and uh, in, in my review in the New England Journal about the medical management of obesity several years ago, I put this in as a one-liner and the journal insisted it be removed because <laughs> it's anecdotal. But I find that about 40% of people with obesity who need weight reduction eat because they're hungry. About 40% of people have absolutely no hunger-motivated intake. They're grazers and are just eat due to stress or anxiety or depression. And then there's 20% I'm not quite sure of. But in that 40% who eats because they're hungry, they're very good fentramine responders. Interesting. I never use Orlistat, almost never. I have a few patients that like it because when they eat a high-fat meal, they're willing to put up with the side effects. <laughs> but for the most part, it's not a very effective weight loss agent. So, Christopher, tell us a little bit about the resources you have when patients uh, get referred to you uh, at Stanford or some of your colleagues. Do they routinely see a dietitian? Do they 
have um, follow-ups on a monthly basis? Do they do uh, food diaries? Tell us a little bit about some of the things that may be responsible for some of the success you've had. Well, that's what you're mentioning there is all part of the armament you have to have ready, an endocrinologist to talk to, a dietitian, an exercise physiologist, somebody in the, in the sleep world, uh, getting your doctor on board <clears throat> to write you a prescription for exercise. Some people do better monitoring themselves. Some people hate monitoring their diets. But monitoring predicts success, doesn't it, Chris? It, it absolutely does. But can you monitor for 40 or 50 years? <laughs> and, uh, you know, clearly what we got to get across for the long-term weight loss, which we don't have data on, is that these can't be diets for short term. These have to be for life. So yeah. whatever this pattern is that you pick, your exercise pattern and your diet pattern, it's not until you lose weight and then go back. Bob, as we wind up, um, you're one of the country's foremost endocrinologists. Tell us your opinion about bariatric surgery, the obese patient who has diabetes. Um, where should clinicians um, place the, the option of referral to bari bariatric surgery in the hierarchy of things? Well, there's uh, clinical care and then there's research. And I think the clinical care is BMI is above 35 with several comorbidities as an indication for surgery. And above 40 is probably the treatment of choice unless they're contraindications. I'd send them to you, maybe Roger, to assess their cardiovascular system in more detail. But if there no is no obvious great risk to surgery, a BMI above 40 demands a surgeon. Now, the, the research is more in the area of diabetes. And uh, as we've learned from the Australian experience and even increasingly in the United States, there are studies ongoing to suggest that if you operate in people whose BMIs are between 30 and 35 with relatively new onset type 2 diabetes, that maybe you can cure type 2 diabetes. Mm. Now, cure may not be the right term. It may be delaying right. the natural history of new onset type 2 diabetes. But nevertheless, this is research and not clinical care, and I think we have to be careful along that line. So, Christopher, do your colleagues at Stanford have a threshold about when they would refer the patient with the BMI around 35 to bariatric surgery? Does that person need to demonstrate that they can uh, follow uh, better dietary and exercise habits and demonstrate discipline? If you give us some of your thoughts. Well, certainly not taken lightly. So yeah, so they meet with John Morton as our key bariatric surgeon at Stanford, and he works with them closely for a long time, and there's a lot of follow-up. So ask them if they can follow these uh, prescribed regimens beforehand and, and stick with them afterwards and give them that support. Make sure the support is there. Bob, Neil Stone has uh, lectured to us at Hopkins. He says he likes to tell patients to uh, eat less, eat smarter, and move more. Right. Do you have any uh, good phrases you could leave us with that uh, you think would be helpful for the clinician to uh, reinforce this important lifestyle message to patients? Well, I'm not the poet that Neil Stone is for sure, Roger. Uh, no, I, I'm not sure that I have anything quite as uh, succinct and uh, wise as Neil has come forth with. But nevertheless, I, I try to, to really emphasize the importance of primary prevention of obesity in first-degree relatives, particularly children of patients I see. And I think prevention is really the, the most important way and most effective way to prevent obesity and its related complications. Once that weight is on the high end, you defend your body fat. And much of my work in animals, Roger, really deals with genetic modification of genes that influence body weight regulation. That's where I'd like to get a better insight into mechanisms of this weight maintenance. Christopher, um, maybe just um, give us your final thoughts about what role genetics will play in um, dietary advice or things like that. Are we getting close to figuring out 
what type of diet we should um, prescribe to patients based on their genetic makeup? Uh, I got a great ending note on that. Sure, we're going to find some differences in genetic predisposition that might help, but a woman wrote me an email lately and said, I can't wait till you show me what that genetic test is. I've been on every diet there has and none have worked. Can't wait till you show me what my genetics are. And I wrote back and I said, if you've tried every diet that there is, telling you what your genetics are isn't going to help. You've already tried the right one. Gotcha. <laughs> well, Bob, Bob, last question. I yeah. was born a Redskin fan, right. Shanahan's in, in Washington. Yeah. Was he as difficult with the press and the players uh, in Denver as he seems to be with Washington? I think he's learned new tricks or lost them that he had previously. So I wish you the best going forward well, with Mike you. Shanahan in Washington. Well, this has been an excellent di discussion. Um, we've talked a lot about obesity. We've talked about what the future holds. We've given some uh, good parting tips and ideas. And we've even given some insight into our sports fans out there about what they can expect uh, with the NFL in the future. You know, one thing we didn't say, Roger, uh, in, in parting maybe, is the fact that if patients can't lose weight, we need to be aggressive in managing their risk for cardiovascular disease. And I, I think that that's a message we didn't get across, but I think we should leave with our audience. Right, and we should always just remember the, the ABCs of prevention, um, antiplatelet therapy and assessment of risk, B for blood pressure, C for cholesterol and cigarette cessation, D for diet and weight, diabetes prevention or management, E for exercise, F for follow-up, and remember family history because if someone has uh, early heart disease, we need to make sure that we talk to their children, their siblings, the other relatives about their risk and make sure that they get screened. So on that note, this is Dr. Roger Blumenthal from Johns Hopkins. Thank you very much for joining us today.